This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Don't forget to send us a text at 2057 and uh, email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. There was a time for a while, while when governments were assessed on their performance by whether they were running a, a deficit or a surplus and that running a surplus was seen to be a good thing and running a deficit was seen to be a very bad thing. And that was, I guess, following Ruth Richardson's Fiscal Responsibility Act, which sort of put that government spending uh, at front and centre of what a government was up to. And you know, I remember Helen Clark's government being very anxious to be running a surplus. Now, never gets mentioned. I imagine that if you ask someone in the street whether the government was running a surplus or a deficit, they would look at you somewhat quizzically. And to be honest, if you'd asked me, I would sort of say, oh, yeah, I think they're running a deficit, but I don't know how big it is. Well, to explain where we are on the deficit and on what's called fiscal policy, which is government spending, we're joined by a reality check favourite, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson from the New Zealand Initiative. Good morning, Bryce. Good morning, Rodney. Now, we're going to be doing a lot of numbers, I suspect, and we're going to be talking billions and billions and billions of dollars. And it's very easy for people's eyes to glaze over and to lose track of it. So we're going to have to take this carefully. So can you start by explaining what's been happening to government spending and the deficit and the debt this past little while? And I'll give you the context. I read a report that said it's forecast that the interest bill to the New Zealand government, which means taxpayers, is forecast to be larger than what we spend on primary and secondary education, which I can understand is a lot of money. So what we're spending on our schools is to be exceeded to be what we're paying just on interest because the debt's getting that big. So can you explain what's been happening to spending, government spending? Yes, um, we could we could start with Labour's fiscal plan before the 2017 uh, uh, general election, and um, some readers will recall that um, there was a big furore over Stephen Joyce as Minister of Finance at the time, saying that Labour's fiscal plan had a hole in it. That's um, right. I remember that. And um, that fiscal plan uh, was uh, projected uh, that Labour could manage the economy with doing only a very small increment in government spending over the next five years. Um, and uh, Stephen Joyce, I think, well, you know, largely lost that debate. And um, National still outpolled Labour, you will recall, but Winston so Peters... Just to remind uh, us, Stephen Joyce said that there was a 
a big fiscal hole of some billions of dollars in their plan. Was that yeah. correct? Yes, that's right. And um, Burl had done the work and um, said, no, no, it's it's uh, consistent with uh, what Labour's told us. And Burl is an economics consulting group that ad advises yes. the Labour Party. Yes, yes, commonly the Labour Party. Um, and the problem, essentially, the problem was uh, that if, if Labour had kept to the plan, there wouldn't have been a fiscal hole. But uh, as I saw it, um, the plan was never consistent with what Labour was intending to spend. And in essence, um, each, each government uh, assumes that they're not going to pay any wage increases in the public sector because the the fiscal, Treasury's fiscal projections are done on a no-policy-change basis. And since there's no policy at the time to increase um, public sector wages, uh, they to cover that, they provide a generalised provision for operating allowances for unallocated future spending. And Labour in its fiscal plan essentially took um, Bill English's provisions for things like uh, wage increases, price increases and the like, and converted them into committed spending, but not spending on public service salaries. Now, Labour wasn't complaining, campaigning on the basis that there'd be a, a, a public sector freeze. wage freeze <laughs> for the next five years. Um, and that's not what transpired. It's been um, uh, paying, uh, you know, cost of living and other, other wage increases, and it's still going through that again. So what happened was as the future unfolded, um, Labour's spending was greatly exceeding the spending it had provided for in the fiscal plan. For a while, it was a bit lucky on the revenue side. So the uh, Bill English had, you know, spent nine years converting the big deficits he inherited from the Clark Cullen government, which were made worse, of course, by the global financial cri crash and the Christchurch earthquakes. So Bill had spent about best part of nine years wrestling with big fiscal deficits and finally converted them into a surplus. And then just on that note, yeah. um, he was extremely tough. And I was fortunate enough to be a minister briefly in that mm. period. And just, just to tell listeners how tough it is, every minister around him wants more money. And they're his friends and his colleagues. Mm. And he's the only one saying no. And it's, it was extremely tough. And I can remember sitting outside his office waiting to see him and have a minister walk out of his office crying, mauling mm. their eyes out, crying, because he'd said no to their, you know, favourite plan. And you're looking at that and you're thinking, that's extremely tough job, right, to keep yes. that spending down. Yes, and most ministers, um, most ministers of finance aren't up to doing that. Um, 
we we saw we saw it happen 1984 to 1984 to 1990 when there were three ministers of finance so the numbers were a little bit better they had they had uh, mutual support so that was Roger Douglas and um, Richard Preble and David Cagle and they held the line very tightly and then Ruth Richardson came in and she was she was of the same ilk but since then, um, oh, Bill Birch, to do in credit, uh, did keep the reins reasonably tight. But um, then we have, we've had so many years of Labour governments where they've started off with um, fiscal surpluses and ended up with uh, big fiscal deficits. And uh, this government's no exception. This government, um, so it was blowing out expenditure um, very significantly faster than in its fiscal plan before COVID hit. But when COVID hit, you know, the the the, the blocks, the, the checks and balances just came off and it allocated sort of 40, 50 billion on COVID-related spending. And that's the problem which um, ministers of finance are going to be wrestling with probably for the best part of the next nine years. And it went out with no particular reckoning as to costs and benefits. And the tragedy is the next government is going to be in trouble trying to get spending under control again, just like Roger Douglas, just like Ruth Richardson, just like Bill English get into trouble by trying to keep a little. They're not even trying to reduce government spending. They're just trying to stop the acceleration, right? Mm. Yes. Um, and it, it's important to say that um, New Zealand's not as in, in as bad a shape for public debt as, as places um, which are far more important, like the USA and Europe and, and the Bank of England. So yeah, Ruth Richardson brought in, or her, her government with Jim Bolger, a fiscal uh, responsibility bill and put that into the Public Finance Act. And um, that did put emphasis on prudent levels of debt and uh, having a plan when you when you got into deficit for restoring surpluses or budget balance. And I think that stood New Zealand in pretty good stead until now. Um, the, the COVID crisis uh, was used, well, it, it, it just blew it all apart. Um, it was big, big spending, tens and tens of billions of spending uh, without... Uh, all done in a hurry, uh, with public support, uh, given the, the freeze, but um, just kicking all the costs and the pain of that into the future. But now and, that's over, yeah. shouldn't we go back to where we were? Yes, yeah. And um, the there's... There's concern about uh, Treasury in this because up to 2000 and, and, and the other ones who are really um, adjudicating an, uh, as to what is a prudent level of debt because they have to give the minister of the incumbent Minister of Finance advice about that. And um, prior to COVID, 
they were um, talking about low levels of public debt as being prudent. Um, and and I, I, it was more like 10 or 20%, depending on what the definition was, that was being used. Ten or twenty percent. Ten or twenty percent of, of yeah of GDP. Okay. Yeah. So so much lower than it is now. It's running at more more forty fifty percent now. And Treasury really came out with a a rather weak uh, report supporting a much higher level as being sort of consistent with a prudent level of debt. And a lot of it depends upon what you think the future interest rate is going to be, because um, as as you were noting in, in your introduction, uh, when your public debt's quite high, and 40 to 50% of GDP is pretty high, 100%, which is where the US is, just looks uh, really scary. Um, as interest rate rises on the public debt, because inflation is getting in the way and all that, you... Uh, interest payments start to take an increasing um, proportion of tax revenues. So it becomes a bit of a, a vicious cycle uh, when, the and, um, when the interest rate is greater than the, the economic growth rate. The debt burden is rising faster than our national incomes to finance it. And you can so end that, up borrowing. You can end up borrowing and paying ever more interest payments and you're running faster and faster just to stay still. Yes, you start borrowing not only to roll over your maturing debt, but also to cover the interest payments. And then as anyone who's wrestled with a, a credit card problem or a mortgage problem knows, that's uh, that's something like a death spiral. Something's mm. got to be done. And why does it matter to me what the government deficit is whether it's or and debt so the deficit is what's happening that year as i understand it and the debt is the total so is that correct yes that's right what when the government's doing it on your behalf or my behalf or you know on behalf of households it's like it's running out uh, debt for you on on your credit card, but you're not seeing it because it's on the government's credit card. But the government's really you. It's it's really householders. The only way it can pay down its borrowings is is by getting it out of households. So um, it seemed very good to everyone at the time. Government was paying these big wage subsidies, which was a major thing and uh, shuffling out money on so-called shuffle-ready projects and the like. And it was as if it was uh, free goods. People weren't noticing it uh, in a negative way on the household budget. What, what they were getting was the benefit of the wage subsidy. So their wages seemed to be coming through anyway, even though they, they, they weren't working or producing. Nearly so uh, I, was getting, I was getting paid to sit at home and watch Netflix and eat chips and order yes. pizza and beat the COVID. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. Go Jacinda. Everyone's yes, saying right. the economy's amazing that it's hanging up, but it was done on borrowed money. And so at some stage, well, we're certainly now paying the interest on that borrowing. 
But yes, that's right. If you'd been borrowing in your own name, you would have seen your credit card debt rising yes. or, or your mortgage debt rising, and you would have felt uncomfortable about this. Um, but because the government was doing it and was being presented as benevolent and, and having largesse, um, the government was giving the impression that it was a free good. It was really helping people. Yeah. But um, it's, it's, it's basically delaying the pain. And when we spend government money now and then, as long as you're borrowing, you're not a you're, you're sort of borrowing for present consumption, aren't you? It's not like you're you're sort of having a holiday now, paying for my holiday on my credit card, and I just run up the debt, which I have to pay interest on at best, and at worst, I have to start paying off to maintain economic credibility. So when we say, oh, government should spend this money on teachers or hospitals or uh, whatever, that is money now that is being borrowed from the future. Is that correct? Yes, it is at the moment. The government's running running quite a sizable deficit at the moment. So um, any new bit of spending, um, which it's doing, is uh, putting it on the credit card, basically. So if we if we give more money to teachers, which everyone accepts is a is a very good thing, or if we put more money into the hospitals, which everyone accepts is a very very good thing, every time we do that, it's not you and I now that are paying for that. It's us in the future or our children that are paying for that. Yes, that's right. Um, I wrote wrote an article, you know, a week or so ago, um, memo to Mr. Hipkins, um, taxpayers' money is not free. And it's it's it was a response to his um, speech to the party faithful, um, where he was telling everyone all the all the things which um, the government had created, which were free, uh, free childhood care, sort of free first year university subsidies. Um, and it was as if it was really free, that no one had to pay for it, um, all those things. But the reality was that um, taxpayers have to work to earn the income, which they get to pay the taxes. And there's lots of things they could have spent that tax money on, better education for their kids, um, um, you know, a, a lesser mortgage on the house or do, doing up the house, getting it a bit warmer, a bit cleaner. So people sacrifice to pay the taxes. And then um, the government sort of gives it away as if it's free and as if there's no opportunity cost and if it's really helping people. But yeah. it might be helping some, but only at the cost to others. But there was absolutely no acknowledgement um, in what Hickpins um, was telling people that there was a cost to this. So people lose sight of the reality that something has been given up in and order it, to give it, yeah. And it seems that our sort of legacy media, the, the news, has been hollowed out. So when a budget gets reported, these bigger picture numbers 
aren't reported the same. I mean, uh, as I said in Mintra, it seemed to me it used to be quite a big thing whether you were running a deficit or a surplus, whereas now it's not even scarcely reported upon as a thing. That yes. It's, it's free. Politically, it's very easy for Mr. Hipkins to be run, running a deficit because no matter how long he lasts, it's not going to be his problem. Yes, well, that's, that's always right. Um, yes, when you're coming up to a general election that you might lose, uh, there's a good chance you lose. The temptation is just to spend up large um, and, and to try and win. And and um, you, you could be lucky if you're elected that, you know, the economy could take off for mm. overseas reasons and you get a lot more revenue and it looks okay. Or uh, you could be lucky in that you lose the election and the next government has to spend the next yes. uh, three to three to six years wrestling with the problem. And, well, let's, um, let's just yeah. take that thought experiment. Let's imagine that Mr. Hipkins lives forever and Mr. Hipkins stays on as Prime Minister and Grant Robertson as Minister of Finance and they keep spending and spending and spending and spending and keep running deficits, what ultimately would stop them from doing that? What, well, what happens is the electorate gets dissatisfied um, with, with the outcomes. Um, as I say, sort of interest expense takes up a bigger and bigger proportion of tax revenues. And um, you know, people feel disgruntled about the the poor outcomes they're getting and the amount of taxes they're paying. But governments get tired too um, of it because they get frustrated because they're spending all this extra money, but it's never enough. Well, it never can be enough no. if people are seeing it as free. So, which they do. I mean, if you pick up the newspaper any day of the week, um, like right, right now, for example, it's teachers who want greater pay or principals do. Um, none of those groups ever have to say, well, who should miss out? Um, why the extra, the extra spending on them is more valuable than spending it on hospitals or yeah on uh, welfare beneficiaries or the homeless or, or better houses for people. Um, the, 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 the dialogue in, in the media and the way it takes place is, well, teachers deserve more money, therefore they should get more money, but no acknowledgement that it's going to be at someone else's expense. And is the, uh, the advocate's need really greater than the need of someone else? Well, we, got, yeah. we got conned onto child poverty and no one wants to see kids miss out, but it was the idea that we'd vote Labour and they would fix child poverty. And lo and behold, I see that the Greens are saying it's still not fixed and that we can't address climate change properly until we fix child poverty. And that's a funny one, isn't it? Because child poverty really pulls at the heartstrings. And so I hate to do this because 
it's not the way we should be thinking about the economic pie, but the essence of it is, is that if we, the logic of it is, if we pay teachers more money, then child poverty misses out. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's the crazy zero-sum game that we've got ourselves into thinking about with government. And I guess that's what you're saying, that people become disgruntled because the, I'm a teacher, I'm not getting enough. Mm. And then, but government is sitting there saying, well, I'm trying to fix child poverty um, and we haven't got enough money for that. And you're weighing up child poverty against teachers, against pensioners, against hospitals, against everything. And it's made worse if there's inflation running like it is and higher because everyone feels they are falling behind. Hmm. Yes, that's right. It's, uh, you know, mainstream public debate has just got so detached from reality. Um, another way I sort of think about it is um, for a long time, you know, what's the value of a human life? Uh, we would spend $5 million on making a bend in the road safer if, if we thought that that was going to save one human life in a road crash. But take Pike River, there, there was awful loss of human life there, but then uh, the government spent something like $50 million um, not reopening the mine, not recovering the bodies, but purporting to try to do so. Well, statistically, at the time, that was sacrificing 10 lives on, on the roads. You could have spent yeah. that $50 million, um, improving the road, road safety and saving 10 lives. So, but people had no, seemed to have no concept that the 50 million following up spending on, on Pike River, not achieving anything obvious, not recovering the bodies, were, had a serious opportunity cost. That's a great example, Bryce, because I followed the Pike River debate reasonably closely. And when the government committed that expenditure, there was no thought they would get a body. There was there that was they were never going to enter where the bodies were. It was the most peculiar thing, because the spending had no tangible benefit attached to it, but mm. it was the spending was the performance. It was I'm committing this money because I care about the families and Pike River and it was terrible. And so I'll give this 50 million for even as I'm committing it, it's not pie in the sky. It was like the plan had no benefit written into it. You know, we might find something, but the Royal Commission said you won't. Mm. It was the most peculiar thing. Yes, uh, yeah, I agree. It, it, it's sort of baffling. It was as, as if treating money as free as being compassionate. Yeah. But then you see, once you start thinking along those lines, if we look at so-called child poverty, and I say so-called because, like, a child ideally is being looked after by the parents now that doesn't always work out we understand that that 
it's not tidy and we all feel great compassion but we don't sort of have a child poverty issue we have a sort of mum and dad problem but if you looked at it and i think even jacinda would know this that putting more money through the big welfare machine isn't going to fix child poverty because there's a prior problem of mums and dads not looking after their kids that throwing money through welfare quite possibly makes worse. Oh, it could easily do so. I mean, anyone who's been a donator or a benefactor, yes, if you give away money carelessly and irresponsibly, you are just going to make matters worse. But again, I, it didn't matter, did it? Like mm -hmm. the politician doesn't have that and they're thinking, I'm going to fix this problem, Pike River, child poverty. How are you going to fix it? I'm going to spend money on it. Same with mental illness. Oh, what are you going to do? I'm going to spend money on it. But no tangible outcome. Like you're not looking at child poverty and saying, gee, was the problem here is the government is not spending enough. Um, and again, we're getting this performance on spending rather than that hard look. And so those poor kids are going to grow up poor and stay poor because they're going to be paying for the money that government spent on them to stop them being poor. If you know what I mean, it's so bizarre. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Um, in, in that report I did some years ago on on the welfare issues and welfare policy, um, you know, I just called it the the intergenerational transmission of misery. You, yes. You've got some some families have a, a very small minority, but no one in the families worked for three generations. Yes. So there, there's those poor kids. You know, they they've. Uh, very few of them will be able to escape that sort of hopeless, hopeless environment. Um, we know uh, from Lindsay Mitchell's work in particular that um, a big source of the problem is uh, is, is sole parent families, uh, and it's particularly fathers who are not there pulling their weight. And we know that the biological father is usually uh, the, the best protector of, of their children. It's... Um, particularly bad for kids when um, de facto sort of males or cousins are moving through the household and yes, they've, got, they've got the ability to brutalise kids who, who are not theirs. Um, there's, um, and I give enormous credit to Bill English for bringing in the social investment approach and really trying to get the focus on what programmes uh, will actually help people, help them um, extricate themselves from their circumstances mm. and get back on their feet and, and get into um you know work which is the social activity and and gives a sense of dignity and participation and uh, contributing to the society you're working on and um there, there's there's just no silver bullets but that was a way of actually trying to spend money more responsibly mm. and trying to make sure that you're really helping people and not perpetuating uh the the difficult situation they find themselves in on but yeah in recent years like the mental health the one and a half billion for that was it 
the 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 emphasis instead has, has been on on compassion as announcing spending a lot of money on something but not actually having a program for and making sure it's, it's going to produce good results it's quite funny when you read on not so much in the media but on blogs and you discover through opposition questioning that money has been allocated to achieve some good result such as mental health and then you discover it's not been spent because they haven't figured out actually how to spend it even um which is an extraordinary uh scenario it's an odd politics that we have you mentioned chris hipkins talking to the party faithful and standing there about how he's made everything free and free this and free that and you doing a memo saying well you know, ultimately, it's taxpayers that are funding everything. And it must be a matter of priorities and where you get the best result. But it's all sides, because the nature of our politics is set up that the recipients of the money love it. And when a budget's read, and it doesn't matter whether it's a national-led government or a labor-led government, Everyone claps enthusiastically when the minister announced extra spending for this and he's presented or she's presented as a magician for magicking up this, oh, and I've got another $500 million for child poverty. Yay! And everyone claps. How did he do this? How did she do this? It's a miracle. And I've got another $200 million for this. We never once or there's no votes in not spending money or saving money. So the whole thing's geared to spending more and more money, bigger and bigger government, less personal responsibility, larger and larger debt, and a poorer and poorer performing economy, isn't it? That the politics is driving us into this into this position. Yes. Um... They, uh, and uh, we'll pay tribute to the controller and Auditor-General here, I think, too, because he's been writing reports sort of stressing the importance of spending responsibility, responsibly mm. and actually trying to establish that there are benefits being produced from the spending. And um, I think... We really need our watchdogs. Um, now, you and I, Rodney, you know, have the favoured ratepayers' bills of rights in the past and taxpayers' mm. bills of rights. The analysis of the problem is, is, is that what we're looking at is there's not enough discipline and constraint on, on spending. The, the question of what are the benefits relative to the costs are simply not being addressed satisfactorily. The controller and the Auditor General is pointing this out, but really all he can do is point it out. Uh, no action needs to respond to that. The, the, the government of the day doesn't need to take action as long as it thinks people are going to enough people are going to vote for it. So um, the, the consideration and aspect you and I have thought about over the decades, Rodney, is, um, well, what's, what's the missing voice here? The missing voice is, of course, the taxpayer or ratepayer's voice, the people who are sacrificing some of their income 
to pay it to government in the hope that it's going to be spent um, for a positive net benefit. And so that's still where I'm at, is that the more we look at this debacle where um, everyone is, is wanting more money from government as if it's a free good and applauding government when it gives out free prescriptions or something as if it's doing people some good, um, where it could be just leading to greater wastage of medicines, um, is, is a system where uh, taxpayers can get more and ratepayers can get more of a say when a significant spending proposal comes along or when there's a proposal to raise more tax money by raising tax rates or by broadening the, the definition of income and so getting more, more money in that way. And um, that's still where I'm at. The system we're looking at is not providing value for money. It's, no. it's squandering far too much money. Imagine if we had to write a cheque each week to pay for government, how angry voters would be. Yes, you know, that's right. They have the, the money is taken out of your petrol uh, and you don't see it. Uh, it's taken off everything you buy and you don't see it. And it's taken out of your wages and you don't see it very, very, it's so it's hidden by legislative fiat. Um, it it can't be. No taxpayer can even discover what they're paying. Um, so imagine if we didn't have any taxes, and uh, you were assigned, you were assessed each year how much income you got, and therefore how much you should contribute to government, and it. And each Friday at lunchtime, you had to write a check to the government. And if you didn't, you'd go to jail, which is effectively how the tax system works, except you're not writing the check. And man, if you had to write that check every week, thousands of dollars, um, there'd be a political revolution. Yes, that's right. It's um, it, it's the lack of transparency is giving the impression of it's a free lunch and and the costs just aren't being acknowledged or or built in and after the decision making. So all those things you've specified are right. People aren't aware of what uh, the 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 programs we've got are really costing them. And a poor wee baby. <laughs> a poor wee baby being born today with a big debt around its neck um, because of government, what it's doing right this minute. Yes, that's right. And of, of course, it's, it's more complicated, as I'm sure listeners are, are saying. Well, uh, it's not all even. Um, not all house power payers are net taxpayers. No. Not all households are net taxpayers. So um, there's, on top of all this, of not enough attention to what's been forgone, what, what, what people are having to do without in order to meet the latest demand, is the hope that um, it is free because some other household is going to be made to, to pay more. And that's quite fractious from a, a community cohesion point of view. Um, if 
if a whole bunch of households are predatory towards other households and uh, are convinced that the burden is not going to fall on them so much as others, then that that adds a perversity um, to to the way people vote too. Yes, indeed. And I mean, I find myself having to check myself because I have never felt resentment before, but I starting to feel very resentful. And I find it particularly bad because it's being split racially. And um, I find myself resentful to Maori because I feel as though it's unfair that they're getting an unfair advantage politically, an unfair advantage in what they say, and and compared to my vote, and it's terrible the feeling of, uh, of resentment. You can also feel it with your tax dollars that when I see uh, money being given to groups, often racially, um, or for Pike River, I get resentful, and um, particularly so when inflation is eating away at your shopping bill. And every time you're going to the supermarket, it's a bit more, it's a bit more, it's a bit more. You're going, you know, do something, fix your house up, fix your car up. It's always costing a whole lot more than you had expected. And we're fueling that resentment, which is very divisive in society. Yes, that's uh, yeah, that's one of my biggest fears too at the moment that uh, we're on a track which is going to polarize society in a nasty way mm. on racial grounds. Um, so and unfairly, because oh, the average oh, yes. Maori is doing it tough, like the rest of us. Um, yeah. That's the crazy bit. It's the money is uh, disappearing into a, into a hole, um, but it's being carved up uh, in a way. And I mean, you feel it when you see these um, eco loons getting in your way when you you know you see it overseas and they're trying to stop people from doing things, get to their work, and then you read about them in the overseas newspaper and there's some rich kid um, who's had a private school education and they're stopping a, a bus driver or an ambulance driver from getting to work. And it's this antagonism that a predatory state, which is a state that is handing out income willy-nilly and your taxpayers willy-nilly, it creates it, doesn't it? It creates this division and it's pitting us against each other. Yes, yeah, it is. And it's one of the great perversions is that it, it's been done in the name of equity. <laughs> um, uh, but but it's it's a false concept of equity. The you know you know economists have this this concept of horizontal equity, which is that if two people are in the same circumstances, then they should the state should treat them the same. Um, but now, you know, uh, two people could be have the same health need, but if they've got the right ethnicity, they're going to get preference. Mm. Well, that can't do anything else but um, promote resentment, I would mm. have thought. Um, 
and out of uh, the obvious lack of fairness to it. Another another aspect of the current fairness uh, concept is that average outcomes for Māori on, on most dimensions are worse than the average for the population uh, as a whole. And so then the argument is that, you know, it's fair to disproportionately target one group on the basis of race than another, but that's lost individuality at that stage. So that goes back to my point about loss of horizontal equity, but it's also losing track, and this is going to be very nasty for future society. Um, if you're looking at the race-based allocation of spending, then someone's going to talk about the race, case, the race um, sourcing of the funds being spent. And um, that's going to polarise people further because, mm. um, yeah, how, where is fairness if it's been dished out on, on a preferential basis of race, but it's also been raised on a preferential basis of race? So because we've become so racially aware, if you're what you're saying is if you're spending money according to race, yeah, you're also collecting money according to race, yeah, and disproportionately, so non Maori are paying more than their fair share, yeah, and getting less back, yeah, and that's what this loose use of equity is driving the country to. Oh, all. my goodness, uh, it's, it's like the two sides of a coin. The yes. current concept of equity is only looking at one side where the money's going. It's not looking at equity on the other side through exactly the same racial lens. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, a big, um, this is going right off the topic, but American Civil War and other civil wars get fought along these lines, don't they, when one identifiable group is feeling marginalised compared to another identifiable group by government preference. It, as Tom Soul points out over and over again, it does lead to political tensions that can readily convert to violence. Yeah, that's right. And and the you know my biggest fear is that. We can't have an adult conversation about this without being called a racist. Mm. Now, if, if reasonable people can't discuss this, well, the end of the road is you're going to get unreasonable people, white mm. supremacists and things, taking to the streets. And uh, you get, get, it could get civil, civil unrest on a really serious and impoverishing scale of, you know, destroying uh, each other's treasures on the basis of what's going to hurt the other side the most. You know, cutting down the tree, the, the trees on one tree hill struck mm. me as something of that sort of ilk. Yes. Yeah, what I fear most is that um, if we can't have a good dialogue about this amongst reasonable people, then it's going to be taken over by extremists. That's right, absolutely, on all sides. And, of course, 
we had the dramatic example of our friend Don Brash, who was ex-governor of Reserve Bank, ex-leader of the National Party and indeed ACT Party. So a very mainstream establishment figure. Absolutely. Being denied, deplatformed at Massey University. Yes, that was just woke madness, and and and, and the grounds for doing so spurious. <laughs> and and you couldn't meet in all your life a more reasonable human being. No, I agree with that. And yeah. so it does open the door for um, extremism and inflammatory language because you, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's it's we know exactly what we're saying. Um, mm. Bryce, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. We started off covering off deficits and debts, debt and billions of dollars and numbers and political spending. And then we led to not just the economic consequences of that, but the social consequences of where this can readily lead. And I thank you for your insight and breadth of knowledge. No, but thank you, Rodney. Yeah, we, we both know these are really important and, and sobering and concerning issues. So yes. Being, but being the, able to find a forum where they can be discussed is so important. Well, we're hoping with Reality Check Radio to do that, and we have it as our mantra that everyone gets an opportunity and no one gets abused. And um, we're hoping to get a, a wider range of people on, but we, we do value it because um, if you can't have a civil debate, the alternative is terrible, too terrible to contemplate. So that was Bryce Wilkinson from the New Zealand Initiative. I would say um, the smartest man I know and always a man so aware of government spending and government policy and with that quiet reserve of someone who actually knows what they're talking about rather than shooting from the hip and who goes back looking at government budgets all the way back to Mr Muldoon. So he's had some experience. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send us a text at 2057 or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio I'd love to hear from you thank you for listening this is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am 